Our second reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The word of the Lord. So the prayer is, lead us not, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the sixth petition in the Lord's Prayer, and we come to the end of a four-week sub-series where we're looking at the Lord's Prayer. This one, lead us not into temptation, as a part of the prayer. It's really the last petition in the whole Lord's Prayer. And I want us to remember that we, we tend to think about this, and as we're thinking about it, we try to divide, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. But it's really one petition. Don't divide it. It's not about, it's not about how to avoid hardship, like God keep me from temptation from hardship, or avoiding sin primarily. It's about continuing to trust the Lord no matter what comes our way. The Reverend Martin Lloyd-Jones, preaching on this very petition, said, when we pray this prayer, we are praying, quote, that our fellowship with God may never be broken. Our supreme desire, because it's what we are made for, is to have a right relationship with God, to have uninterrupted fellowship and communion with Him. That's why we pray this, that nothing may come between us and our Father in heaven. So hold that in the background as we look at not only this, but the passage that was read about Jesus. But as we're thinking about this actual passage, I want us to look at the two words temptation and evil, just to set those in our head rightly. First, the word temptation. That's a Greek word that has two very strong meanings that it doesn't come across in the English, okay? One is the way we think of temptation. It's sin and disobedience. It's being induced to act against God's will, to not trust God. But the other equally used version of this word means to test or prove. So a bunch of you who are in middle school or high school just had your final temptations, your final exams. That's really what it is. It's an assessment of you. It's a proving time. 
That can actually come across in the same language that's used for a courtroom trial. Something is on trial and being decided. It's the same word that was actually used when the Pharisees and scribes used to question Jesus in order to trip him up. They were testing him, tempting him, not to sin in the way we think about it, but in order to see if he could stand up to them. And in that sense, this word temptation also encompasses all the difficulties and hardships that we face in life. I think in the first century readers of the Gospel of Matthew, they heard, lead us not to temptation, and their prayer was about facing death for being Christians. They faced a literal decision of, will I apostatize and abandon the faith, or will I go to death? Lead me not into temptation. Give me the faith to withstand. Most of us here in the West don't have to deal with that sort of a persecution trial, but even when our life turns the wrong way, when the news comes, when the diagnosis is given, Lord, may I not turn away from you. You see, beneath all of it is the same thing, which is whether it's the temptation to sin or the testing, examining, proving, it's will we continue to trust and follow God? And the challenge that we're facing is from evil, right? Deliver us from evil. In the original language, the 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 is provided before evil. Deliver us from the evil, and some translations, the evil one. And that's legitimately there, the evil one, Satan, which it's also referred to throughout the Bible. Satan is called the evil one, the slanderer, the accuser, the prosecutor. And to borrow from C.S. Lewis, just to hear his wisdom, he said, I know someone will ask me, do you really mean at this time of day to reintroduce our old friend, the devil, hoofs and horns and all? Well, what the time of day has to do with it, I do not know, and I am not particular about the hoofs and horns, but in other respects, my answer is yes, I do. I do not claim to know anything about his personal appearance. If anybody really wants to know him better, I would say to that person, don't worry. If you really want to, you will. Whether you'll like it when you do is another question. We do uphold that there is a legitimate source of evil, that there is a devil. And just as we do not see God, we do not see all the angelic powers, and that there is evil, like Satan. So we're going to hold to that here. But I also want us to see that the evil one, or deliver us from evil, that word evil doesn't necessarily mean Satan either. And in fact, there are a couple places in Scripture where that same exact Greek phrase, the evil, is talking about the evil that's within us. In other words, our sinful selves. James 1 puts it this way, and it helps to clarify our verse, our prayer. James 1, 13 to 15, Let no one say when he is tempted to sin, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one to sin. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by Now, it doesn't say the devil. It says, by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it has fully grown, gives birth to death. So, in other words, we can't just go around blaming the devil for our choices, and nor can we do something that people in the modern era like to do, Christians like to blame the culture of the world, as if lust didn't exist before the internet or envy before fashion magazines. We are sinful within. 
And what I have found is that Satan actually plays on my sinful desires. Temptation is an internal struggle that actually plays itself out in the mind. If you really think about how it works, it's in our mind that we're processing our desires, our heart, our will. We're understanding our circumstances and what we want. And it's within the self that Satan plays on it. Take an example like uh, something that many of you have dealt with at some point in your life, discouragement. At some season in your life, if, you, if you're more than 20 years old, you, you've dealt with discouragement, a season of discouragement. How does that actually, that process play out? How does Satan work on us? Well, I'll just give you me as an example, okay? What I've found as I looked at the process of discouragement, it starts with weakness, physical, emotional, spiritual weakness, weariness, just feeling empty in some way. And you combine our natural weakness or a season of weakness with the weightiness that all of us carry in some area of life. Whether it's your work or your family or other aspects that are important to you, but I'm gonna give you just my calling here as a minister, right? So one of the weights that I feel is the preaching task. And the reason I do is not because I wanna be popular and accepted, but because I actually believe this is God's word to you, through me today. And that's scary. It's a scary and weighty thing to have to prepare God's word for his people that day. And especially when I think, I don't know if this person will ever hear another message, if he or she will ever enter another church. And so I, I carry that burden. It's a weight. Another is the pastoral calling, to know the pain and brokenness in many people's lives in this space to experience with people and walk alongside of them in their fallenness and in, our, in my fallenness in that process. There's a weight of leading that I recognize that, that I need to cast vision and direction. And it's not because I want this church to succeed financially or numerically or over time. I want it to succeed in the sense of have an impact for the sake of God's kingdom, for his glory. And that's a weight I feel. And I have the, the weight as well of my heart for people who don't know Christ, my many friends who are not fully there with Jesus yet. I am so desperate for them to know Christ, and I feel that weight. Okay, so you take my weaknesses or a season of weakness, you take the just natural weights that we carry, and then take on any trials that you go through, a season of lack of inspiration, you just don't like what you're doing, you don't like the person you're supposed to love, you're... Uh, things don't work out the way you wanted them to with a project you're dealing with. Or, or critique comes along. And look, critique is absolutely necessary. I don't like it. I don't necessarily want it. It's necessary. But when you add something in like a trial, something else that challenges you, here's what Satan does. He plays on the inner voice inside of my head. Satan sounds a lot like me, when I'm letting my inner dialogue engage apart from God. Focused on myself, self-pity, self-justifying, self-consumed, my inner dialogue without God present. That's the voice of Satan. The cycle downward in something like discouragement is always a cycle inward. And the temptation in a place like that is to doubt God's goodness, to 
discouragement, which basically means lacking courage, and ultimately to apathy and not doing anything. And it can lead into depression, of course. You could play that out on any other number of temptations where the various things pull us and push us, and the sin within us wells up. So how can we understand this prayer better and live it out? Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Well, let's look to Jesus and see what he does in Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4, we read, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So the setting here is just after Jesus' baptism when the Father has said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. He's just declared to Jesus publicly, this is my Son. It's just before he's about to start on his public ministry of preaching and healing. And he's taken into the wilderness. The wilderness is a place of testing and proving, tempting, if you would, an examination place. Israel spends 40 years in the wilderness, and we read about that in Deuteronomy 8 which Jesus quotes from later on. And he says, uh, God says, and you shall remember the whole way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So the Spirit has led Jesus into the wilderness to prepare him for his public ministry. It's to prove and test and strengthen him. And of course, the devil Satan intends the same thing in order to lead Jesus into sin, to not trust God, his Father, to trust himself instead. So that's the setting. And then we get the first layer right beforehand when Matthew so insightfully tells us after fasting for 40 days in verse 2, he was hungry. We get it, right? Many of us haven't eaten since breakfast. We know what it's like to be hungry. We're with you, Jesus. After 40 days, he was hungry, and Satan takes that weakness, right, and the weightiness that he's feeling and starts to play on Jesus. Hey, Jesus, take this stone, take these stones and turn them into bread. This was actually a very reasonable miracle for him to do because he was actually hungry, and he had the ability to do it. It was within his power to do something like that. But Jesus knows his calling is not to use his divinity for his own advantage. One translation of Philippians 2 says that he did not exploit his godness for his own goodness. In other words, he didn't exploit it for his own good. Later on, he does take stuff and turn it into feeding 5,000, but it's for the 5,000 hungry, and it's in order to reveal himself as God to these people, but not for his own good. What's Satan trying to do? Not just get him to eat bread. There's something more going on here. Satan's trying to cast doubt on God's goodness, God's love and promises. Think about how this works. It's the same thing from the story of Eden to our lives. It's Satan saying, Jesus, you, you can't really trust this father, can you? You need to take care of yourself. Get your own. Get what you deserve. I mean, you do deserve it. You're hungry. You're going to go do lots of stuff for him. In a me-centric culture like we live in, Satan does not need to appear in all of his demonic horror. 
He only needs to encourage the self-focused ideas that I'm already thinking about. Jesus does not go there. He says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's saying not that God's word's going to fill his stomach, but it takes priority over all else. And he's willing to go there. So, Satan then takes him to the next temptation in verses 5 through 7. Takes him up to the top of the temple. It's at least 150 feet up. It could have been more on some places. He says, if you are the Son of God, jump off. After all, the Bible says the angels will protect you. If you're going to be reasonable, that's right. He is God's Son, after all. If he jumped, God would have saved him, right? I mean, he, he must have. That, that's God's plan. God, God's not going to let him just fall to the ground and crumble. But the temptation is not just to show off. It is, is God faithful? Does he really love you? Are you sure you are his son? Jump off. Make him prove it. Then you'll know for sure, Jesus. And on top of that, think about this. You jump off the temple. It was a busy place. Everyone will see you. The religious leaders, the Roman authorities, and all the crowds are going to see it, and they'll believe. They'll believe you are the Messiah. That's a much easier way to become Messiah, Jesus. No three years of foot travel, sleeping out in the cold, hungry. No being hated and rejected by your people. No being betrayed and abandoned by your best friends. No getting to the end and being falsely accused, thorns in your head, being whipped. No, no nails, no naked death. Go ahead, Jesus. Much easier way to be Messiah. Again, at the root of all of our temptation is doubting God. And at the root of all of our sin is ultimately unbelief and distrust of God and his goodness. Think about any habitual sin. Every one of us struggles with several things that we do over and over again. We confess again. We're like, gosh, is God really going to forgive me this time? Beneath any habitual sin, any habitual sin, is a desire for pleasure or approval or control being loved, some version of happiness, right? That's beneath any of our habitual sins. And what we're doing when we engage that sin is we're either doubting that God can provide our happiness, can meet our need for pleasure, can meet our need for love sufficiently. We, we doubt He can do it, or we assume He doesn't have our best in mind and He'll never give it to us the way we want. God is not trustworthy. He's not sufficient to meet my needs my way. And so I reject God's law or his word and go my own way. But Jesus doesn't. He says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Do not put your God on trial. This is a citation that goes back to a story in Exodus 17 when the Israelites were led out of the wilderness and they ran out of water and they started grumbling. And they basically, all the language in the Hebrew of Exodus 17 that this is referring to is, is courtroom legal language. The Hebrew people, the Israelites, were actually putting God on trial. They were putting him on trial claiming he, he had brought them out to murder them. That's right, that's right, Israel, you're right. God 
protected you from the ten plagues, including the one that would have killed all your sons. He led you out into the wilderness, opened the Red Sea, you walked through on dry land, he killed the Egyptian armies behind you. When you were hungry, he's been feeding you with manna. He only brought you out all this way now to kill you. We don't put God on trial so long as things are going well. The instant something turns, God's on trial. But Jesus won't go there. He knows that if he jumps off of the temple, it will be forcing the Father to act to prove that he's actually God and actually loves him. God, prove yourself to me. In a sense, all obedience is disobedience is that. All disobedience is some version of an indictment against God for breach of contract. God, you're not living up to your end of the bargain. I'm going to go get my own on my own. But Jesus, in his declaring what he does, basically says, even in hunger and suffering and even in death, I will trust and serve my Father. I will trust and serve my Father. So Satan does the final temptation. All the kingdoms of the earth, all the pleasures and glory and power of all the kingdoms of the earth can be yours, Jesus, if you will bow down and worship me. All the power and success now, just worship me. Of course, the irony is, according to Matthew 28 and Philippians 2, all authority does become Jesus. And one day, every knee will bow to him. Jesus responds, you shall worship and serve the Lord your God only. Because he knows that any temptation is a seeking after earthly joys, pleasures, kingdoms, glories now by serving and worshiping another besides God. And he won't go into it. Satan is again tempting Jesus with a crossless kingdom, but Jesus is willing to trust and obey and suffer for an infinitely greater kingdom. And so Satan departs from him. And in verse 11, we get the concluding verse. Satan leaves, and the angels come and minister to Jesus. The father draws near to his son and wraps his arms around him and cares for him. And what we see is Satan is intending to tempt Jesus to break fellowship with the father, but God intends the same series of events to test and prove and strengthen Jesus and his bonds with the father. What Satan intends for evil God intends for good. Okay, so we've looked a little bit at temptation, falling, sin, but how do we actually make this prayer our reality? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The catechism, the Anglican catechism, deals with this uh, Lord's prayer, and in question number 206, it asks that same thing. What are ways to guard against temptation? By praying the Lord's prayer, asking for strength, confessing my sins, recalling God's word, and living accountably with others. So if you want to get very practical about how to live this out, it's basically pray. Why do we pray? In praying, we're appealing to the Spirit of God, recognizing we need the power of God to work against our sinful self, to empower us, enable us to walk in His ways. But also praying is a part of bringing ourselves before God and cultivating closeness with Him. 
When I'm in the midst of praying and talking to God, it's not just me and my thoughts. It's an intimate engagement with my Father, laying down my struggles and doubts with Him and cultivating that closeness of relationship that Jesus had with the Father. We go to God's Word, not just so that we can quote verses in order to counteract our sinful tendencies, because you'll notice that Jesus doesn't just quote verses about how to avoid sin. He actually quotes verses about the nature and character of God. That's why we go to the Bible, so that you fully understand who God is and what He has done, so that you have a greater understanding of who you are and what God intends for you. When you're reading the Bible, don't just look for how to avoid or live, although it has that in there, and we do need that to cultivate a whole Christian worldview in a post-Christian society and in a selfish, sinful assumptions I have, but ultimately it's to have a better view of who this God is. Jesus understands the Father. His quoting of Scripture is saying, I know the Father. I cannot listen to you, Satan. Do you know the Father? That's why we go to the Word. And we need others. It's when we're alone in that internal struggle that it's most likely that I'm going to listen to myself or the voice of Satan. I need multiple deep, committed believers, friends, church, body of Christ, not doing this thing alone. I need to pray. I need the Word. I need others. And I think there's something that the catechism didn't list in here, but I think if we're going to walk into the life that we're called to in this, I think we actually need to embrace our weakness. Embrace our struggle. Now, I don't mean give up on fighting. (laughs) I mean this. Jesus emptied himself of his divinity in a sense of taking advantage of it for his own good and became fully human. He struggled. He suffered. He dealt with sickness and pain. He dealt with loneliness and fear. And he obeyed. Often when we're dealing with temptation areas or struggle areas, we're praying for God to remove our very desires, our needs, our drives, our humanity. Jesus didn't come for us to remove our humanity, but to redeem and restore our humanity. And honestly, it's in the midst of our weaknesses that we see and understand and experience the grace of God more fully. You don't experience the grace of God in your perfect areas. You don't. What did Paul say in 2 Corinthians? He prayed, remove this thing from me. And the Lord answered him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardship, persecutions, calamities, content with all the trials and weakness that we deal with. For when I am weak, then I am truly strong because I'm relying on the grace of God and not myself. In our weakness, the grace of God becomes deeper and realer and truer. God draws closer. As we pray this prayer, we also need to realize that we have a problem. You and I are still fallen and sinful. It's not just that you're not perfect, it's you can't be good enough. 
None of us can. But of course, the gospel tells us there was one who is. He endured greater temptation and trial. He understands how hard this life is. In Hebrews, the Hebrew writer assures us, we do not have a high priest, Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus did not give in to temptation in the wilderness, in Gethsemane, or on Golgotha. He lived a life we never could have lived. He died the death we deserve to die so that we could receive the life that only he deserves. Through his blood, we have redemption. We are reconciled to God by his death. Because of Jesus, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He has already delivered us. And he won't let go. Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion till the day of Christ Jesus. You may wrestle with struggle, temptation, trial. He will carry it on to completion. And so, what do we do? We do what the Hebrews writer also says in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's actually one another. Don't live your life alone. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who fixed his eyes on the joy that was set before him eternity, the Father, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of of God. So that's what we do. We fix our eyes on Jesus our mind, our heart, our life, trusting Him. And we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray. From the love of our own comfort, from the fear of having nothing, from a life of worldly passions, deliver us, O God from the need to be understood, from the need to be accepted, from the fear of being lonely. Deliver us, O God. From the fear of serving you and others, from the fear of trial or even death, from the fear of humility and failure. Deliver us, O God. May we taste and see you and put our trust in your grace and your mercy. In your name we pray, amen.